The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And they, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. Father, give me help this morning as I preach these words. Lord, knowing this morning was a little crazy in terms of time, I pray that you would allow my words to be your words and uh, my good news to be your good news. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Here's a quote one preacher wrote. See if you agree with it or not. God wants to father us until we're completely certain of His approval. The Lord wants to father us until we are dead set sure of His approval. A father's approval, whether we want to admit it or not, it has so much power that it can motivate us to do anything. It can also squash us to want to do nothing. That's why as a father, I have to pay really close attention to my face. Because my father face gives me away all the time. (laughs) We'll be watching a show that's sad and my kids will turn from the screen to look to me to see if I'm crying. Or we'll hear something inappropriate or funny or on the fence inappropriate funny and they'll look at my face to see how I've reacted. My face shows them a father's approval or a father's disapproval. Honestly, it's a ton of pressure because I don't always know what my face is saying. You all know that my face says more than I want it to say sometimes. And my kids know that too. And it's uncanny how these kids can read their dad's face. How many of us looked to our father's face for approval, for standing, for acceptance, for understanding? Maybe you had a dad whose face of approval was a regular thing. 
When you made the shot, the basket, or you landed the performance plane, he would be there on the sideline cheering you on with a big smile on his face. Even on the phone, when you'd call home, homesick or floundering in college, you could hear his smile on the other end, just loving to talk to you, even though you were struggling. For others... A father's face said a very different thing. It read of disappointment, disapproval, distance, disgust. When you drive home from school, you didn't see a smile. You didn't hear anything. Only the grimace that was a billboard of all the baskets that you missed or all the notes you sang out of tune. Maybe he wouldn't even look at you. One author sadly writes about his own experience of having a father as a minister. He says this, My relationship with my dad was very painful. It took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. So where do we go, friends, when a father's face doesn't give us what we need to feel secure or accepted or loved? Where do we go in our sinfulness? We look to any other face for confirmation of who we are. We need confirmation of who we are. Tell me, tell me. So we become people pleasers. Or we need confirmation of how awful or worthless we were told we are by becoming people displeasers. The expression of this phenomenon is in today's passage. As the Pharisees and the Herodians are attempting to manipulate Jesus with flattery, and they say to Him in verse 14 this, You are not swayed by appearances. What does that mean? Well, literally, in the Greek, it means you do not look at people's faces. What they're saying of Jesus is true. He's not consumed with what other people think of him. What are his eyes fixed upon instead? They're fixed upon his father's pleasure of him, which was heard from heaven at the beginning of his ministry. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you hear that smile on the father's face? Jesus lived with his father's full approval, with his father's smiling face upon him. And Jesus came to bring the Father's approval to earth. As the preacher says, to father us until we're certain of his approval. The Father's face smiles upon Jesus. And Jesus alone. So we must seek his face alone to live. So how does this passage call us to seek the face of Christ in order to live. I'm going to unpack it, but I'll give you the headlines. First thing we need to do with our eyes of where we're looking is we need to turn our eyes from shifting faces. Second thing we need to do with our eyes is we need to lift our eyes above earthly places. And finally, we need to fix our eyes where a father's grace is. Turn from shifting faces, lift our eyes above earthly places, and fix our eyes to where our Father's grace is. 
First, we've got to turn our eyes from shifting faces. Let's begin in verses 13 to 14 of this passage, where we're going to recognize what shifting faces look like. Jesus is being, a, he set a trap from these religious leaders who are, ironically, these people, these Herodians and these Pharisees, they're more interested in people-pleasing than fearing God, the religious leaders are. And we saw that in the passage prior to this one. They couldn't arrest Jesus in the moment that they wanted to. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. That's a people-pleaser. And what do their shifting faces look like that we're called to turn from? Well, shifty people, shifty people shift three main things in this passage. They shift loyalties, they shift language, and they shift the law. First, you see a shift in their loyalties is in verse 13. The Pharisees and the Herodians are coming together to trap Jesus. To have these two names, Pharisee and Herodian, in the same sentence would seem absurd it would be saying like Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky were arm in arm as they approached Jesus. Pharisees were Jews who were about ridding Jerusalem of Rome. Herodians were Jews who had an affinity for Rome. But people pleasers are loyalty shifters. If they can keep their standing or keep their prideful position, it doesn't matter who they make deals with. Jesus was threatening both their kingdoms, the Pharisees' religious standing and the Herodians' political standing. So they shifted and made a deal with each other, with their own devils, to approach Jesus. They shift loyalties. Shifty people also shift language. Look at how they butter Jesus up. Ugh. They lie through their teeth. They call him teacher as if they would ever want to learn anything from him. Lying and flattering with their words. We know how true you are. You don't care about other people's opinions. You truly teach the way of God. This is the wicked way of a shifting enemy. Plays to our egos. Puffs us up. Shifty language. And shifty people also shift the law to get away with law-breaking. They ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay to Caesar or not? They don't give a rip about the separation of church and state here. They are only interested in trapping Jesus into the courtroom of people's opinions. They break the ninth commandment by lying to Jesus to get him to speak the truth. If he says, pay taxes to Caesar... The crowd, the Jewish crowd who's been following up to this point will turn on Jesus. If he says, don't pay your taxes, the political powers who have also been keeping a pulse on Jesus will have him arrested indeed, like Al Capone for tax evasion. Shifty faces, shifting loyalties, shifting language, shifting laws. Where do we all begin to fall into the trap of shifty faces? Where did we learn this as kids, friends? The playground. Playground politics, yes? Do you remember as a kid experiencing those shifty games? Playground politics is all about who's bigger, better, smarter, stronger. It's king of the hill, top of the slide, right? 
And the politics involve shifting people's opinions to support who deserves to be bigger, better, smarter, stronger. Who needs to stay on top of the playground and who needs to stay on the wood chips? I'll give you an example. Susie. She's seen by her classmates, by her people-pleasing friends as the most popular. And stay popular, stay on top of there. She must. Because who would she be without people's approval of her? But a new kid, Alex, he's starting to gain more friends. And Susie feels threatened. She starts a campaign to shift people's loyalties. Alex smells like Taco Bell. Alex smells like Taco Bell. That's her campaign. Loyalties start to shift away from Alex a little bit, who smells like Taco Bell. And Susie then shifts language and tells Roberta, a girl who does smell worse than Taco Bell and who would desperately love for Alex or anyone to be her friend. She comes up to her and she says, Roberta, you're pretty. Come play with me. Don't play with smelly Alex. Susie shifts by her language. And then Susie shifts the law off of her own lies by getting the teachers to notice Hey, did you see that Alex's dad is nowhere to be found? I heard he's in prison. Are you recognizing the shiftiness that goes on around you? Are you recognizing the shiftiness that goes on in you? Questions. How do you change depending who you're with? How do your loyalties shift depending who you're with? How do you encourage someone with your words so that they will think, boy, you're a good encourager? How do you lie or cheat in order to appear righteous? Friends, turn your eyes off of these shifting sands of man's approval. And turn your eyes instead upon the one whose loyalty was not in pleasing man, but in doing his father's will, no matter what it cost him. Put your eyes there. Turn your eyes upon the one whose language was truly, truly, I say to you, even if his words hurt us, it's because he loved us. Turn your eyes upon the one who kept the law flawlessly. He always did what he said. He always said what he did. This king of the hill, Jesus, he helps people like Alex up the slide. This king of the hill, Jesus, he washes smelly Roberta clean. This king of the hill, Jesus, even trusts his father to take Susie down a few notches instead of himself doing it. Put your eyes upon Christ's well-pleasing face. We must not only turn from these shifting faces. We've got to lift our eyes above the earthly places. You see this in verses 15 to 17. Jesus knows the shiftiness that lies in the hearts of the Pharisees or the Herodians and their divided loyalties. And he calls it hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we create a public persona that's at odds with what's really going on in our hearts. Oh, Christians... You know, Christians, we are so susceptible to this. 
we can be such actors. We say we belong to heaven, but we live wanting this earth to be our home. We say, praise be with our mouths, but in our hearts we hope for, praise me, praise me. Jesus calls out hypocrisy. The mouth that says, you're such a good teacher. The heart that says, we hope you burn in hell. He calls it out with a simple command. He says, bring me a denarius so I can take a look at it. A coin. This is the masterful ninja skills of Jesus. The denarius, a coin worth a day's wage. It was the amount that was needed to pay what's called a poll tax every year in Rome. This tax was put on people who weren't Roman citizens, but who were Roman subjects, like the Jews. It was a tax for Rome to say, if you pay this denarius every year, we will acknowledge your existence. It's kind of like lunch money to the bully. So in one way, Jesus is bringing out the denarius, raising question about how people assess their worth and value. But more than that, the denarius has on it an image, a face and a phrase, a likeness and an inscription. And he calls out hypocrisy in the mere act that they would, or mere fact, excuse me, that they would have a denarius actually in the temple. Why? Why is this calling them out? Because if it's in their pocket, all kinds of God's laws that the Pharisees were known to keep were being broken with having possession of this one coin. Because on the front of the coin was an imprint of the image of Tiberius Caesar's head with the words that said, Son of the God. Son of the Divine. And on the back of the coin was him, Tiberius Caesar, on a throne with the phrase, High Priest. To have possession of a denarius is to have broken the first two commandments. Have no other gods before me, and you shall not make a graven image for worship. And Jesus says to them, whose face and what words are on here? That question is calling out their shifty hearts. In other words, he's saying, what does this coin say is God and high priest? And their response is a confession of guilt. Caesar, an earthly man is deemed as God. So in saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, yes, Jesus is saying, pay your taxes. But more than that, he's saying, give to a man what is man's, which does not include your worship. But give to God things that are God's, which is worship, praise, gratitude, honor, obedience, everything. God made you, he says, not Caesar. God sustains you, not Caesar. God delivers you, not Caesar. These earthly substitutes for God, like Caesar had become, we have to turn our eyes above. Friends, there's nothing wrong with earthly leaders. There's nothing wrong with earthly things as a concept. They're made by God. Having authorities is good. Money is good. Sex is good. Work is good. Power and taxes can even be good. But where these things go wrong is when these earthly things become God. What are your earthly things that you are setting your eyes upon? How do these earthly things give you a sense of assurance 
or acceptance that I'm okay. Turn your eyes from these earthly things and onto the king. We can't allow earthly things to mark our acceptance or approval. The Roman poll tax said that even though you're not a legitimate citizen, we'll declare you're worth something. And we make all kinds of things being indicators of our worth. Move your eyes above those earthly things to heavenly spaces to find your worth. To a throne room where Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Jesus is the son of the divine. Jesus is the high priest, the one from heaven to earth to declare our worth. We are worth the coinage of his blood. He didn't give up a day's wage to count us worthwhile. He gave up his entire savings account. He gave up his life to cause the father to smile, not only on him, but on us as well. We got to turn our eyes from these earthly places and onto these heavenly spaces. Lastly, we need to fix our eyes on where a father's grace is, the marvelous Jesus. We don't get a significant glimpse as to how Jesus' ninja skills maybe impacted the hearts of the Herodians and the Pharisees, but we do see how they were affected by his words in verse 17. What does it say? They marveled at him. They were left speechless. They were utterly astonished. Friends, when the world sees Jesus in his truest form, in his fullest glory, this will be the entire world's response. Every knee will bow, not just the faithful's knee. Every tongue will confess he's Lord, not just those who declared faith in him. Every tongue. They marveled at him. What's the name of the film brand that is raking in the most money right now over the past decade? Marvel. Interesting, isn't it, where we're putting our eyes? We put our eyes on the screen to see things beyond what we can imagine. It's one thing, friends, to marvel at someone or something marvelous. I remember going to the Louvre in Paris and staring at the Mona Lisa. Staring at this marvelous painting. Or watching a marvelous sunset. Or watching the latest Doctor Strange Marvel flick. But it's a completely other thing to be invited into the marvelous. What if you're standing at the Louvre, staring at the Mona Lisa, and she says your name? What if as you're watching Captain America defeat thousands of enemies, he says from the screen, jump on in. Come on in. What if as you're witnessing a glorious sunset, you hear these words, this is my gift to you. This is yours. God's grace instinctively works in me to want to respond to those invitations like Charlie Brown when he was chosen to direct the Christmas play. Me? Are you talking to me? We can't imagine a father loving us rebellious children that well. We can't imagine a father giving such a gift of beauty, victory, or power to broken, sinful, messed up people like us. But the gospel invites us into the marvelous, not because we're beautiful, not because we're superhuman, not because we're glorious, 
but simply because he wants us to know how marvelous Jesus is. You will not find an invitation into the marvelous based on your playground position, Herodian. You will not find an invitation into the marvelous based on your earthly possessions, your wealth standing, or your power, Pharisee. You will only find an invitation into the marvelous based on the Father's smiling face set upon Jesus. Faith is hiding yourself in Him. Faith is putting all of your shifting shadow sins onto Him. Faith is believing the Father will shine His face upon you because your face has and is being remade to look like Jesus's. Friends, live as if His smile is upon you and that's all you need to live. Close with this, since my kids were babies, I've said goodnight to them most nights with the priestly blessing from Deuteronomy 6. Why do I do that? Does the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up His favor upon you, give you peace? Why do I do that with my boys at the end of every night? Because I want my kids to know that no matter what their day looked like, whether they were good boys or bad boys, whether they were angry boys or sad boys, that because of Jesus, their Father's face will always be smiling upon them. His countenance is not one of scorn or crossed arms or disapproval, but one of joy and delight. We saw in the Old Testament passage, no one has seen the face of God except Jesus and lived. And anyone, friends, who will behold the face of God without Jesus on the judgment day will not live, but die. But to the one who sees the face of God through Jesus will see the most glorious, loving, comforting smile a father could give to his most treasured children. I want to sing these words that I sing to my kids. And if you can try, kids, you can try to lead this, singing back to me the same phrase I sing to you as we close. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And be gracious to you. May the Lord lift His countenance on you. Remember this. May the Lord lift His countenance on you. And give you perfect peace. And give you perfect peace. Father in heaven, shine upon us through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we see your smile. And may we live in a confidence that we don't have to earn it. We have it because Christ always had it. May it be ours. And may we live in that confidence every day of our lives. Turn our eyes from people pleasing 
from shifting faces. We're never going to be satisfied with man's approval of us, ever. Turn our eyes from these earthly things that we hold on to to give us approval and acceptance to the throne of God. Where in Christ we have Your smile, we have Your approval, we have Your grace, and we're invited to participate in it every day. Pray this in Jesus' name who made it so. Amen.